0: Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. We'll, um, we want to jump right into our text this morning. Um, Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 13 through 20. And um, as you're turning there, I want to just exhort you in a couple things. So your partnership with uh, Iglesia Missional, um, so Rainier and Lady Martinez, I've known Rainier for probably four or five years. Um, I first met him actually here in the States. Uh, and then have been down to Cuba. I'll actually be in Cuba again in, I think, uh, three or four weeks. Um, but uh, Rainier, is, is a, he's the real deal. So I picked Rainier and Lady up when they um, came across the border, picked them up in Philly last, uh, last January. Uh, it's a great story. They were um, and nobody wanted to leave the airport because it was 20 degrees. Like, these are people that, when they got to San Diego, put winter, winter coats on. Um, and you can imagine them when they got to Philadelphia. And his wife, in her broken English, said to me, um, Syracuse, is Syracuse as cold as Philadelphia? And I said, oh, no, lady. Syracuse isn't like Philadelphia. She said, oh. I said, Syracuse is so much worse than Philadelphia, and it's not even funny. Oh, no. This couple, um, Rainier, in coming to the United States, his passion was really to be part of um, what I'm doing in Latin America, building a team of guys um, who will go after um, really 300 million um, Spanish-speaking Latin Americans in this part of, in this, in this hemisphere, in the eastern hemisphere. And that's really what, what why Rainier left Cuba. He loves Cuba. He didn't want to leave Cuba per se. He left Cuba really so that his, his girls would have the opportunity to grow up in freedom. He has, a, he has a, a, a daughter who's, I think, maybe eight years old, Salome, who was finding herself um, more aligned with um, Che Guevara than she was with Jesus Christ. And so as a father, he wanted her to be... Um, in a, in a situation where, where, where he, could, he, could, he could disciple her in a, in, a, in a way, and so even there we, we tried to help him understand, like, dude, you're coming from one corrupt environment to another corrupt environment, so please let's not confuse that, but nonetheless, um, helped him get here. But um, so in, in, in the interim time of him getting to a place where he can um, travel, he can't travel yet um, with me to these other countries, um, He has um, not just sat on his fanny and done nothing. He's actually just begun to just evangelize people. He's planted a church. He's doing an unbelievable job. And so I just want to thank you for your partnership with him and what he's doing. We've seen, I think, 15 to 18, maybe even 20 Cubans be baptized um, who didn't know Jesus in the last four or five months. Uh, We have a church of maybe 50 people um, that meets uh, every Sunday morning uh, just publicly, but really they gather multiple times throughout the week um, of people who didn't know Jesus. Many of them have escaped persecution in ways that you couldn't believe. The church in Cuba is actually thriving uh, as we speak, not because of the Obama administration and the things that they're doing. Please don't take that as a political statement. <sighs> I don't believe in political statements from the pulpit, but because of really what the Castro regime has actually done. By, by the Castro regime putting its finger on the church the church did what the church was always created to do. Um, it went, it decentralized, and it, it has gone from house to house, neighborhood to neighborhood, street to street, as men and women uh, fell in love with Jesus and then took the took, took their gospel out everywhere. Um, rather than um, becoming a centralized organization that saw itself as an organization, the church in Cuba became a people um, which went out. And so in just a couple weeks, I'll be with leaders from all over Cuba, training guys um, in three different cities. So you can pray for that. But pray for Rainier. I, I, I implore you to, those of you who are getting together on the 19th, that would be a great thing for, for all of you to do. So whether you know Spanish or not, um, that's, a, that's a great thing for you to be involved with. Anyway, um, that's a long way from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. So um, this is the word of the Lord. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all of their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation, behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are indeed a refuge for us. Those of us who recognize um, by um, an act of your grace, our eyes have been opened and we recognize that this world is not our home, um, although you created it for your glory. um, When when we say that this world is not our home, what we're really saying is that the present order of the age is not our home, and we seek refuge from it in you and in you alone. We thank you that you are indeed a refuge for us that You have not left us alone, that you, have not, that you have not created us and left us with no means to know You, no means to be reconciled back to You, but that You have in Your wisdom, grace, mercy, and in Your justice sent us our Redeemer, Jesus, who not only provided a means, but who continues to intercede on behalf of his people, who is, as this text um, introduces us to, our high priest in the line of Melchizedek. And that this promise that you gave isn't a new promise, it's an old promise. And that it's a promise that's guaranteed not by something that we do. but it's guaranteed by who you are and by what you've declared. And so although you call us to live in light of who you are, the things that you accomplish are things that you accomplish on for your glory and for the good of your people. And so we thank you for that. So Lord, as we spend time in your word being reminded of these things, we thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it is it is a pleasure to be with you again. As Mike said, we, you know, many of you know who I am. Many of you, I know, many of you helped us in those early years. Um, Plant Missio Church, and um, some of you were were part of um, our congregation um, years ago, and others of you um, are faces that I, I'm not familiar with, and yet your brothers and sisters. And so, um, I just want to again uh, thank you. I, I I think of John's words to. Um, to the church in Ephesus, uh, when he wrote in his epistle that I've got no greater joy than to see my children walking in truth. And so, when I think of congregations like Renovation, when I think of other congregations that I've helped plant, um, that that's my heart. I have no greater joy than to see, um, you know, and not that you're my children, but 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 the efforts that we've had a hand in um, walking in truth. And so. Um, <coughs> so that gives us that gives us great joy you know um when we planted missio years and years and years ago our heart wasn't to plant a church that a lot of people would know about our heart was really just to be part of the redemption of a city Um, we planted a church because we couldn't sing or dance that's all we knew how to do we were church planters that's what we are um, but was really to be part of something bigger Um, i remember sitting in a room with people um you know, Jim and Val and Bob and Deb can maybe attest to this. And I remember in those early days talking about being part of the redemption of 500,000 people and people looking at me like, you're just a crazy kid. You don't know what you're talking about. We're going to put up with you because we liked you when you were a little kid. And now that you're an older kid. We'll kind of put up with you. And then I started talking about the world, 7 billion people. And they looked at me like you've really gone off the edge, man. But again, we like you. So we'll put up with you. But that's what we're seeing now. These congregations having the opportunity to engage the world, and so um, it's it's been a fun journey to be on. And really, when you look at this text, when you think about what God is speaking to His people here in Hebrews chapter six about promises and um, to Abraham, that's really the things that missio church and renovation church were built on those very same promises right because in just as we read in a few moments ago in genesis chapter 12 when god called abraham to himself now if you think about it in genesis chapter 11 all abraham is in genesis chapter 11 is is a pagan farmer that's who abraham is he's a babylonian pagan farmer there's nothing special about abraham Right? He's just hanging out with his father. Right? That's, that's who Abraham is. There's nothing special about Abram. Right? There's, there, there, there's, no, there's no sense prior to Genesis chapter 12, right, that we get about Abram that this is the guy that God's going to choose. Right? But once you get into Genesis chapter 12, when, when Abram's father's dead, right, all of a sudden now, The calling that Abram's father had now passes down to Abram. And God says, I'm choosing you, and out of you, I'm gonna bless the world. Right? I'm gonna bless you, he says to him. Right? Right? That word bless that, that God uses for for Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, really is an is 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 a term from Eden. Right? If you go back into Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, God God forms Adam and he forms Eve, right? In his image, right? Right? Vice regents that are going to represent him in the world. Declare his glory to the world. Right? And the very first thing that God does in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 when he forms Adam and Eve is it says that God blessed Adam. And that term bless, we look at and we think because we're Americans who live in a land of plenty, and we think about blessing a lot, and we think blessing generally refers to stuff, whether stuff is physical stuff, material stuff, relational stuff, emotional stuff, um, uh, wealth stuff, that blessing has to do with that. But the, the term blessing, barak, in Hebrew, is a relational term where God... right? stoops down, kneels down, and brings Adam close to himself and blesses him with his presence. So over and 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 over, the majority of time that the word blessing is used in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it is not a stuff term, it's a relation term where God blesses his people. And the primary way that God blesses his people is he blesses them by bringing them into relationship with him. So God blesses Abram, a pagan farmer who does not even know who he is. He calls him from death to life in Genesis chapter 12 by bringing him into relationship with himself. Right? That's what God does in Genesis chapter 12. And says to him, I'm not only going to bless you, but then I'm going to use you as my conduit. You don't even know me. Like, you have no concept of what I'm talking about. But I am going to bless the world through you. That's what I'm going to do. And so in Genesis 1, 28... I'm gonna bless you, and then through you, I'm gonna bless the world. Right? You're gonna multiply. I'm gonna fill the earth with you. Everywhere you go, everywhere you go, everywhere you touch, my image touches, so that the world will know who I am. That's the same thing that he says to Abram. I'm gonna bless the world through you, so that when we read here in Hebrews, oh, by the way, that's the that's the call of the church. That never changes. This is a bad pulpit, by the way, on a wood floor, just so you all know. You need to plan better. For a guy that leans like me, this is, bad. this is bad planning. When we come to Hebrews chapter 6, like God planned well, you all didn't. When God made a promise to Abraham, right? This is, this is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. When God made a promise to Abraham. Now, the, the, the idea here, he's now picking up in... in Genesis chapter 22, all right? Because later God reiterates said promise in Genesis 22. Flip with me to Genesis 22 if you would. Starting in verse 9. Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, see, remember he said, I'm going to bless the world through you, and then later he comes, and Mike already read that. he, he, he tells him, I'm going to give you a family, right? And he gives him Isaac. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, Isaac's the biggest waste in all of scripture, because Isaac never does anything. It's Isaac's kids that actually end up doing something, right? But nonetheless, Isaac is the child of the promise, right? But God tells Abram to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah, right? My friend Bernie named his daughter Moriah for a reason. People are like, like, after Moriah Carey? (laughs) No, if you know Bernie... No. Right? Up to Mount Moriah. To offer him up as a sacrifice to the Lord. And so that's what, that's what Abraham does. Because by this point in the story, Abraham has built his life on a promise. Because God has given him a promise. Right? We're going to get back to Hebrews chapter 6 in a minute. But remember, that starts off when Abraham received a promise. So we've got to understand this promise for a second, right? So Genesis chapter 22, it says this. So, so Abraham brings the kid up. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in, the, in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And He said, "Here I am." And he said, "Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now recognize what Abraham is doing is really foreshadowing what God the Father will one do one day do. He's offering up his only son. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold. Behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, or the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on that mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Moriah. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time and said, Now here's here's, here's what we said. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. This is the promise because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Now, God has already promised this to him before, but he's reiterating the promise that he has earlier declared. By I will bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring... Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my my voice? So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So we go back to Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all of their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Right? Now, why is he talking about this promise? Well, in the tail end of chapter, or in the tail end of the prior two, in verses eleven and twelve, he says, "And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness." To have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, the promise that God gave to Abraham wasn't a singular promise, i.e., this is just for you, Abraham. The promise that God gave to Abraham was for God's people. What God has always desired from the garden, when he called Adam to himself, right, and said, I'm bringing you into relationship with me. And, and oh, by the way, I'm then going to multiply you. And I'm going to fill the earth with you and your offspring. And you are going to be in relationship with me. And you are going to represent me everywhere you go. So that all of the earth will know me, 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 my dominion, my glory, my rule, my reign. That has been the call of God's people from the very beginning. It gets reiterated with Abram. Right? We see it again at Sinai. Right? These are the promises of God. They're not new promises. Right? They just get refocused. They get recalibrated. They get, they get re, it's not even so much that they get reassigned. It's just that they get, they, they get refocused. Oh, here, here's my people. 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 So that when Jesus comes and looks at his disciples and says, "Follow me." What is he doing? He stoops down close and brings in people and says, "You come close. You come close to me." And what am I going to do with you? I'm going to come into relationship with you. I'm going to do something in your midst. You're not going to I'm going to do something in your midst. You are going to then come close to me and I am going to make you something. You're going to become fishers of men. You follow me, I will make you something you cannot become on your own. You become, you're going to be in relationship with me and you then will become representatives of me. It's the same call. So now again, let's think about the context of this letter. This letter is written to Jewish Christians in the first century, most likely living in Rome, about to, about to suffer intense, if not already beginning to suffer intense persecution, thinking about returning back to an incomplete understanding of the God of the Bible. It was easier if we just abandon Jesus and return back to Moses, return back to Judaism, right? if we just return back to these other roots, it will be easier for us. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, no, you have a promise. right? Your roots point back to a true and eternal promise. destiny as a people that's found in relationship with the Lord God that Moses pointed to, that Abraham points to. So he continues to go back to their Jewish fathers. These men point back to something. He goes back to to, to, to to the priestly structure. He goes back to creation. He goes back to all of these things. They point to something. They point to these promises. God made a promise to His people to bless them, to multiply them. And then God... God himself guarantees this promise, right? Like, their custom was to to make an oath. It's interesting, when we read through the Proverbs, we see over and over, like, not to make an oath, like, you know, don't make a silly oath, don't make an oath, don't be quick to make an oath, you know? Um, I'm a risk taker. I work with three other men, who are not risk takers I used to work with a guy named Jim some of you know Jim Jim was a risk taker with me like we would jump out of a window no problem right um, I work now with three dudes who are not risk takers um, we were in New York the other day I brought Bernie up to the um, the Freedom Tower and like the whole elevator right up he's like sweating profusely because <gasps> because he doesn't like heights. And it's like, well, we're just going to the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere. It's no big deal. It's all inside, dude. We're gonna be fine, you know, sweating. Um, So I, by nature, am prone to just say, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, of course we can get that done. I take risks, I make crazy oaths. Of course I can get that done, I guarantee it. Not a problem, not a problem. I work with more cautious men. They're, they're good for me. One of me to three of them. It's a very good ratio. They keep me, they keep me balanced. Right? But, but the custom within Jewish life was to guarantee something with an oath. And really, what, what Scripture actually called them to do was to say, as the Lord lives, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do this right like they they would guarantee things right by something that was greater than them like i can't guarantee it by by the property that i own because maybe i don't own that much property i can't but i can guarantee it as surely as yahweh lives i will do this i will follow through on my word so when the lord makes his promise to his people he has nothing to to swear it by that is greater than himself Because he recognizes there is nothing greater than me. Right? So when God guarantees his promise, he guarantees it by two things. The two most trustworthy things. His nature and his own word. And those are the two most trustworthy things that we have. The character of God. The nature of God. Completely, utterly trustworthy. Now, you may be sitting here this morning and saying, I don't really trust God. I feel like God has let me down. I feel like God has disappointed me. I feel like God has um, not followed through or not helped me out or not... Now, the pastor in me, or at least the expectation of a pastor in me should be like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh. So that's what Mike would say. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) How's your heart? I'm going to say get over it. Stop it. Stop it right now. Stop it right now. Because God has never disappointed you. He has never disappointed you. He sent his son to hang on a cross for you. And in that moment... He accomplished everything for you. And in this life, you will have many trials, and you will have many hurts, and you will have many pains. And he never promised you an easy life. What he promised is to redeem you and to restore you. That's what he promised. And he has in Christ Jesus. So get over yourself. Repent of your sin. And run to Jesus. Because God's character is entirely trustworthy. His word is entirely trustworthy. If he declared it, it is entirely trustworthy. Earlier in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, if you Flip back to Hebrews chapter three. I think it's in verse six. The writer Hebrews says to um, his audience, he says that we are his house if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That seems like an odd verse. Like, hmm, what's he saying? It seems kind of like ah, we hold our confidence and our hope. Kind of like my I have a fourteen year old son who's kind of arrogant, kind of narcissistic. Uh, he likes to think that he's pretty confident in himself and he likes to boast about things. Uh, He was yapping at me about beating me in fantasy football on the way over here. Um, he's, He's a brat, right? So that's not at all what this verse is talking about. He's right there. He's right there, by the way. That's not at all what this verse is talking about. What this verse is talking about is the trustworthiness of God's promises, right? When it talks about the fact that we are to hold fast our confidence it's the promises that God has already accomplished and realized. The things that God has already done and that they've been realized. They're the things that, that we, we can look back in the past and see that God has already accomplished and, and, and we, we can see them. Right? We, 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 they're already in the bank. right? That Jesus has indeed gone to the cross. That he has indeed risen from the dead. That he has indeed ascended and sits at the right hand. Right? We, we, can, we can go back. And that's why scripture is filled with these things. When you read through scripture, you see over and over again, you look at an event like the Exodus. Like, how many times did the people of God write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite about the Exodus moment? Why? Because it was a promise of God that he was going to deliver his people. And they continued to remind themselves of the fact that God has delivered us, he has brought us in, he has set us apart, he has redeemed us and given us an identity. He is our Redeemer. He is our Deliverer. We can bank on this. And then when the author of Hebrews talks about boasting in our hope, he's talking about the promises of God that are already accomplished in Christ Jesus, but not yet realized. That He will come again. That He, uh, he, he does rule and reign, even though we don't necessarily feel like it in this life. That He will restore that although your body may be be sick and tired, that you may feel the effects of sin in this life, that one day in the new heaven, the new earth, there will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more dying. There will be no more sin, no more angst, no more suffering. And so we hold fast to these promises. Back to Hebrews 6. He says that God has guaranteed these things through his word. So when God desired to show, verse 17, more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, his nature, his his word, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, now he talks about we, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to what? To hold fast to the hope set before us. So how do we respond? As the people of God in the midst of a world that is gone to hell, we don't give up ever, ever. Because you want to know what? Our hope was never set on this world. But unfortunately, in America, in the West, our hope was set on this life, even as the church. Because the church and America have become so intermingled, so bastardized in the way that they have become just so... that the church in America has... Man, it put its hope somewhere else. But Scripture has always called us to put our hope... In Jesus and in Jesus alone, to put our hope in the promise of who God is and what God has declared. And if we are faithful to do that, right, because of the grace that God has given to us in Christ, right, not because of what we do, but because of the grace that God has given us in Christ, if we do as this scripture calls us to do, to flee for refuge in Him that we could have strong encouragement to hold fast, right, to cling, 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 cling. I remember as a kid once, we didn't do very many of these outdoorsy things, but one time my father brought us up to a lake, and we were in a boat. Silly activity as far as I'm concerned. Um, And my brother, Jason, who acted like he knew what he was doing, um, had one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat. And those two things separated and he found himself clinging for dear life to a post on the, on the dock. Right? Like, didn't know what he was going to do. So he hung there as we all went out in the boat. <laughs> we are to hold fast to Jesus. Like our lives depend on it because they actually do. But there is a casual nature to the church of Jesus Christ where we actually don't believe that. We think that our lives depend on ourselves, on our bank accounts, on our ability to do this, that, on our church attendance. Get out of here. My life depends on Jesus, on his blood, on his resurrection, on his ruling and his reigning. That's that's what my life is built on. And then the things that I do for him are for his honor and his glory, not my standing in his kingdom. So that 19, we hold fast to the hope that is set before us, and we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. Not, again, the things that I do for Jesus, right? A hope that enters, a hope that enters, a hope. I have a hope that enters. I don't have to worry about anything. I don't worry about anything in this life. I don't say that in a braggadocious sense. Please don't hear me bragging. I, but I don't worry about a thing. In this life. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Why? Because my Jesus has gone as a forerunner on my behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We are his people, as his people are called like Abraham. Right? Okay? Abraham who was willing to take his son, his only son, up onto a mountain and take a knife up because he trusted. Now, you know, Abraham didn't tell his wife that's what he was going to do. But Abraham just went and he did it. Why? Because he trusted God. Are you willing, am I willing to, to, to bank my life on the promises of God in such a way that in 2016, I lived with such a reckless abandon in obedience and submission to, to the nature of God and to the word of God. Right? That I understand who God is because he's revealed himself in Jesus and in the scriptures. And that I'm willing to come into submission to the, to, to the nature of who he is. And to the, to, to the revelation of his will in the scriptures. That I live in my life in such a way that I hold fast. That I live in hope and in obedience to all that he commands me to do without any sense of worry. Again, I'm not telling you like, I get that some people worry, but I'm not worried about these types of things because I'm going to obey him because he has gone before me and there is nothing, nothing to worry about. Again, in this life, Jesus has already said, think about these people. These people are about to abandon the faith. These people live in a life, in a world that is on fire, (laughs) Guess what? So do you. So do you. So do you. And it is into this context that they are reminded that God has always called the people into relationship with himself and into representation of him into that world that's on fire. That they can quietly and confidently rest in who he is trust in His promises and continue to faithfully represent Him everywhere they go. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to continue to worship the Lord. Father, we thank You for who You are. We thank You for what You've done. We thank You for everything that You've declared about Yourself in Your Word. We thank You for everything that You've declared about who we as Your people are in Your Word and how we are to respond to You. May this congregation of Christ's followers, hold fast to your promises. And Father, I pray that if there are any in this room today, and I trust that there are who don't yet know you, who haven't yet experienced the joy of following you, who haven't come into submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that today um, that they would not harden their hearts, but that they would um, um, hear the gospel and that they would respond to it. Lord, glorify Yourself in and through Your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.